Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Dog College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an incredible conversation to share with you. I just spoke with a man named Les McCune, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Predictable Success. Les, in his earlier years, was involved with the founding of over 40 different companies. In that time, he noticed a number of patterns that would result relate to the success of the organization and notice different phases of growth that all startups are going through. As a startup entrepreneur myself, I found this very interesting. And uh, and I have to say, Les's system and the way they described it was spot on to my company, which you know lends a lot of credibility in the sense that it is a universal thing that uh, I truly believe in. And I believe his system is very accurate for diagnosing a business's ability to grow and scale. Uh, he has worked with clients including T-Mobile, American Express, United Technologies Corporation, the U.S. Army, Pella Corporation, Anderson Windows, and Harvard University. He has been featured on NBC, ABC, BBC, CNN, all over the place, and has a wealth of knowledge to share with everyone who he interacts with. So this was a lot of fun for me. I certainly learned a lot and have a lot to dig into that he mentioned on this uh, on this episode. And I know you're going to love it as well. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Les McCune. Hey, Les, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Super to be here, Patrick. Hi, everybody. For the audience out there who's not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them in your own words what it is that you do and how you got to this point? Sure. Uh, well, I work with organizational leaders. Uh, doesn't matter whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit. If they're running an organization and they feel that they're stuck, either personally or as a team, uh, then they call me and I help teams get unstuck. And that's essentially based around my own experiences over decades, where I started as a serial entrepreneur, started 42 new ventures before I was 35. And, you know, you do something that often, even a dumb Irishman, which is by my accent, you can tell what I am, uh, begins to see some recurring patterns. So I started to see these recurring patterns, began to codify them, jot them down, Long story short, had a, a decade in my mid-career where I was helping uh, really build out what was the very first, what would now be called an incubation unit. We didn't have that phrase back then, but a friend of mine, fellow uh, serial entrepreneur, uh, unfortunately not with us any longer, Will McKee, he and I uh, started in West Belfast, of all places, in the middle of a brutal civil, civil war. And we had fantastic success in building and growing indigenous local businesses. And uh, looked up two years later, we had 13 offices, five countries worldwide, 100 and something employees. And at that point, I was beginning to see the patterns of growth in the later stages after startup. Moved here, US, 22 years ago, 1998. And uh, I did that specifically because I had a once in a lifetime opportunity to uh, settle in the West Coast 
the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and the opportunity to work with Microsoft, Sun Microsystems, American Express, the US Army, Harvard Business, uh, Harvard University, um, just a whole raft of very large uh, organizations. And I wanted to do that to prove out this model. And it did. The model that I was seeing, I wasn't making it up. It was just patterns I saw, became a wholly codified seven-stage model, which I called Predictable Success. Published a book, same title, 2010, became a New York Times and, uh, I'm sorry, a Wall Street Journal and a USA Today bestseller. Uh, published three since then, all on the same topic. And that's what I now do. I consult and coach with organizational leaders. That is an incredible story. And there's so much that I want to dive into there. Um, I, you know, one thing I love to focus on is sort of those early days, uh, you know, the sort of where you really cut your teeth to, to learn this stuff. And particularly in your example, you know, uh, I've started, I've sort of been a, a part of three startups in the past. Uh, two of them was sort of completely from scratch and that was quite overwhelming for me. How did you manage and what was the motivation behind starting so many different ventures? Uh, you know, like that's, that's uh, exponentially more than myself and it's hard to even wrap my head around that. So what, how, how did that happen? In retrospect, at the time, it was just an outworking of being a weird kid which I'll share a little more about in a minute or two. In retrospect, it was the first flowering of what really has become my life's work, which is pattern recognition and teams, which is very arcane, but I'll, I'll again, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that. The weird kid bit is that when I was in my teens, in my teens, 14, 15 years of age, I, I was fascinated by business. Uh, you know, that was one recipe for getting bullied a lot because I had no interest in space or, or, or females or fire brigades. I was fascinated by the concept of business. Don't ask me where I got the fascination from. I don't know, probably something to do with seeing my father come and go to, from work every day. And I was all set to go to college to study journalism. I had in my mindset separately, it was like two, two paths were running separately. Uh, I had seen myself as a journalist. Now this is a long time ago, as was already established, I'm about 137 years of age. So this is back in the day when journalists wore, uh, you know, grubby raincoats, they wrote on steno pads and they skunked around places. I really fancied that lifestyle. All set to go to Edinburgh University to, to study journalism. And I just realized I didn't want to do it. First of all, I didn't want to do it. Secondly, there were personal reasons why I didn't think it was going to work. I would have been the very first person in my family to ever go to college. Nobody had ever been before. And really, at the end of the day, I didn't think we were going to be able to pull it off financially. As it turned out, my eldest daughter then gloriously became the first person to go to college and, and ended up going to Cambridge University of all places. To, Excellent. Good way to start. Um, so I... I, I Passed on that, and a great mentor of mine said, Les, if you're genuinely interested in business, do one of two things, either go and study law or go and study accounting. And it so happened the door was closing very last year of being able in the UK to go become the UK equivalent of a CPA, which is a chartered accountant, uh, doing essentially night school. So it was very last year to do that, and I signed up for it, and I did five years of night school, worked during the day for an accounting firm, studied at night, did my exams, passed, it was a five-year course, and uh, pretty much immediately because of uh, environmental uh, reasons, there was a massive push uh, in the US, uh, sorry, the UK where I was still living, on uh, entrepreneurship, starting indigenous businesses, really to free us from being a branch economy of the US and South Korea. You know, if Bayou or Ford caught a cold, we'd lose 15,000 jobs in somewhere like Manchester or Liverpool. Wow. Uh, and I immediately set up my shingle 
and started consulting and advising people. I had no interest in tax returns or anything historical or that side of accounting. I wanted to understand business. So I started quotes consulting to people. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, thankfully, picked up a reputation really early on as a good person to go to if you wanted to take advantage of all of these tax breaks and loans that were available for new startups. And I'd help people build their cash flows, go negotiate loans, find a partner if they needed one, find premises. And very quickly, I started getting asked if I would like to join in and, uh, you know, would I, would I become an interim CEO just to get the thing kicked off or join the, the founding team? And I, I essentially, Patrick, for about eight years, I got to cherry pick six to eight opportunities every year. And wow. that's where the 42 came from. And uh, two of them were very embarrassing failures. Uh, Northern Ireland, where I was living at the time, is very small community. I learned an awful lot from those, but I learned an awful lot more, frankly, from the 40 that I either typically sold back to the founding team or sometimes we'd wrap them up and send them on. So that's how I got started. That's fantastic. That's really a very interesting story. And uh, it really speaks to me in the sense that you're able to develop a skill set and you know you were the expert in some respects on this tax code and the opportunities available and what that was able to unleash for you in creating value for other entrepreneurs which is very interesting sort of uh path through the doorway to opening up all these companies and being such a valuable resource for founding teams yeah. and you know it's it's it sounds like it plays into you know your experience uh, today with predictable success, being able to see sort of the life cycle of companies, how, what makes for a good founding and, you know, at what point do you need to sort of shift gears to get to that next level, which is, uh, what you're the expert at now, wow. where was, what did you notice? And then I want to go back to the pattern recognition uh, aspect as well, which is I can imagine anybody going through 42 startup companies, you're going to start to notice patterns of what works, what doesn't. You said there's two embarrassing failures, which those are always great, right? But what was it that was causing those startups to succeed uh, more than the others? Well, the bit that was uh, relatively easy to nail down uh, is the stuff that everybody actually gets fixated on, uh, which are like, for example, if you're a startup, you know, what do you focus on? What do you focus on finding a profitable, sustainable market? You focus on cash flow above all else. You know, there's a whole raft of stuff there. And I talk about all of that in predictable success. You, you, you know, in each of the other stages, there are a bunch of mechanical things that are required as well. And we might touch on a few of those as we go through, but the, the real, um, uh, the thing that really got me gripped and locked me in for life on this was when I recognized that you could get all of that mechanical stuff right. And if you didn't have the right mental mindset for the stage of growth that you were at, which is a vital part of this, then you could try to do all the right things and it wouldn't work. And I'll give you a, a classic example. So a typical founder is a, a leader of a type that I call a visionary. I found out that there are four leadership types required in order to get through to the peak stage, which I call predictable success. And the first one is we need a visionary. A visionary, what's that? It's not somebody necessarily sits on a mountain having weird visions. Um, it's somebody who thinks big, 30,000 feet level, not really that interested in doing the details, can grind it out if they have to, but it frustrates them. They're starters. They like to start things. They're coming up with brand new ideas you know, all the time. You don't want to meet a visionary when they've been on vacation or at a convention. They've got a thousand squirrels are going to start tomorrow. Um, and that visionary mindset 
is vital in getting out of the early struggle stage, the first stage. 80% of all new ventures fail in the first three years. And the number one reason for that is that the founder doesn't have that visionary big picture mindset. So what happens is this, this is where I began to see these patterns. I didn't have these names. I put the names on everything later. What I recognized that a visionary on his or her own would not succeed. It took me a while to start to see this. Here's, here's Joanna. She's an incredible visionary, meets the model perfectly. She's doing all the right things, but she's not getting any traction, stuck with a tiny little business. This is really sort of like a jobby, just about paying the bills, getting, compare that with Frida, who's just taken off. What's the difference? I saw the difference was Frida had gone and found herself one or more of what I call operators. It's the second of the four styles. An operator, what's that? It's somebody who just gets stuff done. Not fussed about the big picture, doesn't really like strategy sessions, blue sky thinking, but tell them what to do, they'll get it done. Now, it won't be pretty and there'll be a few hurt feelings, but it'll, they'll get it done. And that visionary operator combination is what unleashes a new venture out of early struggle into the second stage, which is really the first growth stage. And I give that a really technical phrase, that second stage, I call it fun, because it's fun. Because we've got a visionary now conducting three, four, five, six growing team of operators. You go do this, you, you go make the product, you go sell it, you go install it, you collect the money and the business grows through fun. And real quickly, just so that our listeners can see the whole picture, I saw that, and then I, the next phase that I saw is the third of these growth stages, and I, I call it whitewater. It's a stage where, to cut to the chase, tell you what the last slide says in this, in whitewater, essentially what's happening is complexity is overwhelming the visionary and operator's ability to just come in every day, say yes to everything, work like crazy, improvise, and get it done, because that's how we manage and lead in fun, right? I'm sure you've been there. So oh, what yes. happens in Whitewater is there's an existential choice. Either the visionary, who's typically the owner, maybe one or two of the operators agree, listen, I don't like this, don't want to be here, let's just go back to where we were. And you cut back a little bit, you become essentially a, a niche boutique business. It might happen when you've opened your fourth coffee shop and you realize, I don't want, I don't want to be Starbucks. I, let's just go back to two. It worked perfectly fine in two, got a little shady at three. So, or you make a commitment to get through to the next stage, which is the peak stage. It's a stage I call predictable success. It's where you can scale, where you can become Starbucks or Caribou Coffee or whoever you want to be. For that to happen, that the final parts of the puzzle where the vision and the operator need to bring in somebody that I call a processor. That's somebody who thinks in systems and processes to codify and make repeatable what our success was in fun. That's the single biggest problem in growing any organization for profit or not for profit is the visionary and the operators loathe with a vengeance what the processor is trying to do because it feels like it's strangling them. And so finally, and I'll stop this long section with this, to Please. really make it happen, the fourth style has to emerge and it's a style I call the synergist. And the synergist is the person in the team that keeps that team together. It's the glue between the visionary and the operator on the one hand who just want to say yes and make it up. And the processors, because there's usually a bunch of them, who want to systematize, codify, and slow things down. And that was the pattern recognition that I saw that makes a difference. You can do all of the mechanical things you want, but if you don't have those 
four styles, you will not get into this, the scaling stage, which I call predictable success. It's I'm absolutely floored right now because what you've just described without me having any previous knowledge of, uh, of your system is exactly the dynamic of, of my business and you know sort of the characteristics of the founders of the company and exactly the stages that we went through wow. so it just speaks volumes to you know how accurate this model is and how uh how much of a pattern it truly is in business i'm i'm super curious about your process for documenting that and understanding it you know me personally i notice a lot of patterns and things uh about what works and what doesn't work. But for you, do you write these down? How do you quantify sort of these? Uh, what, what's your actual process for developing the terminology and attaching labels to these different uh, phases of growth and characteristics of leaders? Well, first of all, on the recognition point, uh, Patrick, thank you for that. And uh, it just, it's just interesting that uh, I knew that I'd got this right when people, and this was a while, quite a while back, would say things like, have you been hanging around in our office? And then technology came along and I, I would get told and still get told a version of this literally every day. Have you been reading my email? Yeah. Have you been putting a webcam in our office? And, and, I, and I literally have some version of that communicated to me in some way. Uh, every day, somebody says something like what you just said. And that, that's what confirmed to me. I didn't make any of this up. That's why I know it's right. Because yes. I didn't make it up. All I did was uh, what you just asked me about, which is I, I was on about my fourth or fifth of the startups that I was doing in the early days. And I realized something important was happening. I was getting way more interested in the process of the startup than in the startups itself. And so I became agnostic to what it was going to be. I didn't really, didn't bother me unless it was obviously going to be a market that just didn't work because I didn't want to buy myself into a failure. I didn't care whether it was a graphic design agency or a tool and die manufacturer. In fact, because I was getting interested in patterns, I set out to do as much of a buried uh, bunch of startups as I could because I wanted to see what was absolutely non-negotiable. What did you need to do no matter what you did? And that's why I started to work as well with, with not-for-profits. And these days about 40 to 50% of my clientele are not-for-profit leaders. And back then, I used something uh, uh, called a lab book. And a lab book, uh, and any of our uh, listeners who are over 45 will remember these. Um, it was a, a particular brand of long, thin notebook. You think of a moleskin, but like five times bigger than the usual moleskin. And they were ubiquitous back in the day. And I just started scribbling in them. And my only goal was to keep scribbling to see what came up again and again and again. And the... Uh, I went through about 42, 43, 44 of those notebooks. I still have them in storage somewhere. And um, I then stopped because I knew that I had this thing and I needed no more information. Uh, that's, that's not quite right. I didn't need any more fundamental foundational building blocks. And I just wanted to groove it. And I knew at that point I was going to start teaching it. I wanted to write a book about it. And it just came down to terminology, uh, sitting down and thinking through what's what's a visceral word that anybody who's been through it or is experiencing it would know what that third stage of uh, growth was like. And whitewater, when I say it to people who have either been through it or are in it, they say, yes, it's exactly what that feels like. And I say, you were in the fun stage. 
saying, yes. One of the things I keep telling people is, why is it not fun anymore? Uh, so just getting those phrases and then the, the, the visionary operator processor synergist uh, terminology to try to concisely convey what these, these are all human beings. They're not, you know, just prototypes, but what are the key distinguishing differences between those types of leader? That's, uh, I love to hear that. It's very interesting. And uh, I have to draw a comparison to something because what you're describing here is very interesting in the sense that you recognize a pattern and you're able to trust that pattern to, to deliver results based off of how you knew the pattern would work. And it's funny because I've, I interviewed previously on this podcast, um, a name Stefan Alexander, who's a physicist and his method for solving physics equations and physics problems is very similar in the sense of, uh, essentially a pattern or represented geometrically is something that you know is going to work because of the geometry of nature and the truth surrounding that, those figures and those shapes. And what you're illustrating to me now is essentially the same exact thing. You knew this pattern existed in the nature of business and were able to lean on that entirely. So separate the type of business or the market that's in, you know, of course there's some you know, critical factors, but overall it was more about fulfilling the nature of this pattern more so than anything else, which just, that just turned a light bulb on for me. It's very interesting how effective that method is in all disciplines, whether it's physics or entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and to the extent that um, when I begin to work with a client at the outset, I typically do uh, what I call a diagnostic workshop. And today, these days, it's usually a couple of hours uh, over a series of dead spread over Zoom. But in that diagnostic workshop, our whole goal is to find out where they are on the life cycle, where they want to go to, because you've got to make a choice as to whether you want to go to predictable success or fun. And then we build out the roadmap. But I lay out, and typically uh, what has happened is one of the senior leadership team has heard me read the books, something's got interested, want to bring me in. And they'll say all, like, all over and over again, they'll say, okay, um, I guess you want to have a planning call where we can tell you all about us and what we're doing and what, what our mere challenges are. Uh, and I said, no, I, I, I'll do it. I'll do that if you want to. But you, the, the rest of your colleagues are wondering whether or not this is worth the juice. And they are going to be making decisions throughout our diagnostic workshop as to whether or not to fully commit to the it's a fairly heavy process to get somebody out of white water and into predictable success. I'm typically working intensely with them for six to nine months and they've got more work to do for another year or so. I said, I would prefer if you just let me turn up knowing nothing about your organization. Let me spend the first 75 minutes just taking your whole team through that, you know, longer version of that journey uh, and let them decide whether this has got any validity or not. Whereas if they think uh, they know that you've briefed me about the company. They'll think I've just tailored the story to them. And it works every single time. That's remarkable. I'm, I'm curious if there's any questions that you found particularly effective in diagnosing a business. Once you've sort of gone in there and you've, you know, maybe met the team and seen how they operate. Are there questions that, you know, you're asking them or asking essentially the business that have sort of given you the answers that you're looking for uh, quickly or efficiently? It's more a question of observations than questions. Questions are helpful and they elucidate a bunch of stuff. But uh, so I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, so you think about, you know, you launch something, uh, you just, just you, one, two other people, you're trying very hard to find ways to pay them. And it's typically if you become successful, 
though you wouldn't have used these terms at the time, it's a visionary, you're the visionary, and you've got one or more operators. You get into fun, you're a visionary, and you're conducting this little group of operators, bing, bong, bong, and it's, it's all one-on-one -on -one conversation. There's very little need to do anything laterally, if you want to call it that. This sure. big dog operator doesn't need to talk a lot to that big dog operator. They might, but they don't have to because you're the connecting. It's like those old switchboards, you know, you took the thing and you plugged it into the hole. Well, you're the pegboard that's making all this work. And one of the reasons that that works and is successful and is the right way to grow a business in fun is because the percentage, uh, two things. First of all, because anecdote in those days is very close to data. Uh, anecdote is a close proxy to data. So your guy or your girl comes back with a story from the field. This new product that we have sucks because it's blue and everybody wants it's green. That's probably true. And so it's actionable there and then. And the second thing is, that the degree to which people can make effective decisions and implement them on their own is high. They see something, they just need permission from you, then they go do it. One of the things that's happening in Whitewater is that complexity is diluting both of those. Because we've now got 42 product lines, 24 employees, maybe two locations, uh, you know, 397 customers, anecdote is no longer data. Anecdote is just our you know, most loudly spoken salesperson making his opinion known again. And it's not necessarily an approximation to data. And more importantly, the ability to make and then execute decisions unilaterally is disappearing, being replaced by guess what? Good old meetings. We're in meetings and in meetings and we're talking. And so one of the things that's, that's a vital skill to get through Whitewater and into predictable success is to learn how to make as a team consistently high quality team-based decisions. And so for me, as just watching a group talk about an issue tells me a lot about where they are. The main issue is not I'm in whitewater because normally five minutes establishes that I just describe it and they all say, we caught that. How do we get vaccinated? Um, the key thing is, are you in early, middle or late whitewater because the the what we're gonna do is gonna be different from each. And the way the team is interacting uh, helps me see. So observing that. So a typical early whitewater um, team discussion is this. Somebody asks a question like, hey, our two biggest competitors are merging. What are we gonna do about that? And the team behavioral response is, everybody turns and looks at the big honcho. Because the big honcho is the one that's made the decisions all the time, right? If we're in middle whitewater, that question will be thrown out and all of the big dogs around the table, they'll stare sometimes just either straight ahead, literally into space or at the head honcho and they'll sort of broadcast their opinion and then they'll come back. And what we've got to get the team uh, dynamic to is so that if you were walking past and they're talking about this issue, you couldn't tell who the head honcho is by just watching them debate. They're talking with and to each other. They're laying on top of previous conversations. They're building towards a high quality team-based decision. So it's not so much what's the question, it's more how are they dealing with the question, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And, and again, I appreciate your, your approach here. It's, it's much more based off of sort of behavioral fundamentals more so than uh, maybe you could say like some textbook system that is, uh, you know, much more data-driven, spreadsheet-driven or something like that. It's not, this is giving you a very full picture without that, which is very, very interesting to me. 
I'm curious, have you ever seen instances or how do you feel the dynamic is when someone is a particular type, whether they're an operator or a processor uh, or a visionary, is it possible for people to change gears and become a different type of person? Is it easier to do that? Or is it usually better to hire someone that's going to round out the organization for what the needs are? Uh, there are there's a small subset of uh, leaders who can shift between roles. Some people can shift between two roles and flip between visionary and operator. Um, you know, or visionary, much less common and processor. Some people can flip between three, not good at a fourth, and a very small subset can flip between all four. Uh, those folks tend to become all-rounders and there are limitations on that as well. But what most of us are, and by the way, the listeners, anybody can go and just go to synergistquiz.com. It's all one word, uh, synergistquiz.com. Completely free, no a quiz, take you like eight minutes to fill in. It's 36 multiple choice questions and you'll it'll spit out your VOPS, Visionary Operator Processor Synergist Profile, because um, we all register, you know, to some extent on, on most of them. Uh, some people are zero on one or two of the styles, but most of us have got a, what I call a primary style, and that's just who we are. That's how we show. So I'm, I'm a big V, small P, which is a very common consultant profile. So I'm a primary visionary. That's what I like to do is find elegant solutions to, uh, elegant and creative solutions to problems. And I'm a secondary small p processor, which means I like to codify those, package them up and give them to people so they can use them. I don't have much of an active O role. That's what most consultants are like. We don't want to do it. That's why I'm a consultant, right? You know, you get to the fun of doing it. Um, so, and uh, some people have flipped between, depending on what the role requires of them. So one of the um, journeys that I see really good, uh, what I call MSEs, most senior executives, because organizations have different words from like chiefs of executive, general manager, senior, sure. senior pastor, whatever, but whatever it is, let's call it the MSE, the most senior executive. They, they can go on a journey where they start as that highly visionary founder owner. Um, they rarely uh, dip into operator role uh, in, unless there's an, like a lot of leaders in March of last year, as we're recording this 2020, when the pandemic hit, jumped into operator role because there was just so much we had to do to, to get a punch list together. How the heck do we respond to this? But they'll get out of that quite quickly. They'll do the same thing in Whitewater to move into the processor role just for a long enough to get, it's sort of like the pilot light on your gas. I'll, be the, I'll have a processor mindset just long enough to get this thing traction. But what many of them do, and Jack Welch in GE in his day was a really good uh, example of this, they'll move somewhat permanently into the synergist role once they've got their organization and predictable success because they have really institutionalized the V, the visionary thing, and they've pushed innovation and the, and the ability to innovate deep into the organization. They don't have to be the personification of it. And they can begin to be synergists, which is really all about alignment, high quality of culture, employee engagement, empowerment, and so forth. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, that's, I'm excited to take the, the quiz myself. That's an awesome tool. Uh, I'm, I, and I'm curious if you can tell me if in either in the businesses that you've consulted, those initial 42 companies that you started or uh, in other companies that you observed, if you've ever noticed any outliers that fall outside of the pattern, outside of the system. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you mentioned that there, there are really only two, I mean, 
I'm 137, but I've got a, I'm thinking another <laughs> 250 years in me. So I'm sure I'll finish. I'll find yeah, I need to get on your, uh, your health routine. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, but there are two, uh, they're not really outliers. Um, to use a horrible new thing that we've all got accustomed to uh, being at least aware about from the news over the last year. So I'd call them variants. Uh, like the, <laughs> like the Yes. Thing. Um, and the two variants are this, uh, one big one and one uh, somewhat more detailed about, um, uh, well, anyway, I'll just explain it. The big difference is a shift um, or an additional element for not-for-profits in faith and cause-based organizations. So I do a lot of work with uh, churches, uh, with uh, cause-based groups, you know, uh, charities that are trying to change the world. And what happens in the in the for-profit world and the not-for-profit world too is we do all of that good work, we get up to predictable success. In theory, those are the growth stages that we're talking about. In theory, you do the right thing. You can, unlike the human aging cycle, you can stay in predictable success indefinitely as long as you keep doing the right things. But in reality, what tends to happen is because we just did a difficult thing, which was bring process on board and it was painful and it hurt, but we got big rewards. Hey, we're scaling, we're Starbucks now, you know, uh, we're Caribou Coffee, who are just by natural human reaction, that was good. It's my, my response to dessert. That was yummy. Give me more. So we put more processes in place and more processes in place and more processes in place. And that prevents us, that starts the decline stage. It prevents us staying in predictable success. We become over-processed, sort of like the symbiotic mirror image of Whitewater we were, were with the under-processed organization. Now we're over-processed. We start to, you know, harp on about, uh, you know, uh, uh, standardization and compliance becomes a big thing. It's more important that we use the precise hex code for colors on our website than the website is a fantastic experience. And that begins the decline, which I'll not talk about in great detail, but that's the trigger that does it. In the cause, faith and cause-based world, additionally, what, what often happens is it's not the oversupply of processors that cause the start into decline. It's an oversupply of synergists. Synergists are by temperament naturally attracted to faith and cause-based organizations because they're all about people, synergists, and most faith and cause-based organizations are all about people as well. And so they tend to attract too many synergists. And this is a tough message sometimes, particularly dealing with faith-based organizations like churches, to say you've got too many nice people, but frankly, you have too many nice people. There's no challenge factor, you know, everything's done by consensus. So you become deathly slow and you're not innovating. And so that's the first uh, variation. And the other one is, uh, and it took me a while to see this, that for each of the four styles, the visionary operator processor synergist, there's a dark side to each one of those. You can be too much want any one of those and that distends the whole thing completely so real quickly a visionary up to a certain in fact for the listeners and for yourself taking the test uh the numbers here don't matter but a score of up to 480 on any um of the styles is healthy over 480 the closer you start getting towards 960 the more you're getting into the dark side of things and a, a visionary is good dark side visionary is an arsonist 
and that's just a fire starter, you know, who can't, who can't bear not coming up with something new that they're pulling everything up by the roots two days after they planted it. They're changing direction and pivoting in the middle of meetings five times, right? They invented hyperlinking. They just can't stay the course. The dark side of an operator is a maverick. Just somebody doesn't want to come to your stupid meetings, don't want to read your stupid memos. Just leave me alone. Tell me what to do, then leave me alone. And I'll let you know when it's done. Dark side of processors are bureaucrats. I'm here to make sure nothing happens. And the dark side of synergists are people pleasers. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't care what the goals are here. Uh, I'm just going to get in your face and ask you to have coffee with me for the 13th time this week. Uh, so where, where you have at senior leadership, one or more of the leadership team who have pushed into one of those four dark side styles, that distorts the ability to naturally grow into the next style. It's as if it's a chemical process and the, the quantities and the uh, qualities all must line up perfectly for the, for the pattern to, to work properly. It's very, very interesting the way that you've been able to diagnose the system and sort of uh, create the boundaries around what works and what does not work. Um, and I appreciate you sharing those stories of some of the variants that we're seeing out there. Are there instances that you've seen where a company is still, you know, they're, they're sort of within the balancing range, but they're still not finding success and it's, or unable to scale. And at what, at, at that, you know, I, I'm always curious about the question of entrepreneurs that are in a position that they sort of know that they cannot get beyond the point that they're in, whether because of some limiting factor of the market or their product or anything like that, is there a way to reorient those types of entrepreneurs or is there a way to, uh, is there always a way to, to fix that situation? Not always a way to fix it. And there isn't always a way to reorient them. Uh, I, here's what I see is of the, you remember we were talking about the uh, early struggle stage. Yes. 80% um, of all new ventures fail. And a common reason for that, two main reasons. One is not focusing on a profitable, finding a profitable, sustainable market. And so just time runs out. And the other one is you don't have one of these visionaries as a leader. Of the 20% that make it, more than 90% of them are people who left well-paid employment to start this new thing. Very few successes. Some do, but very few. We hear the stories of people who were a failure and started something that was wonderful. But we hear the stories because that's unusual because it's a story. The vast majority of people who start new ventures leave employment and, in fact, leave uh, relatively well-paid employment, they're usually being paid 1.25 to 1.5 times market average. Why would anybody do that? What compels somebody to do that? It's and survey after survey after survey, and all my life's observations are, it's not money. There are some people for who it's money, but by and large, it's freedom and autonomy. The money is a scorecard that tells me how much I get to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. That's why people start new things. And yep. that just proves on occasion to be an insuperable uh, hurdle in scaling, not in growing. It, it's a massive uh, lever, uh, accelerator in fun. That drive for this to be what I want it to be. And the business uh, and, and the, and the uh, visionary founder are the same thing. This is me and it's built around me. And that's the way it should be. That's how you grow an organization in fun. In Whitewater, a shift has to happen if you want to get to scalability. And that is that the business or new venture or venture, if it's a not-for-profit, 
begins to get its own identity. It has rights to be managed professionally, to have discipline, to not be completely subject to your visionary whims. Like you don't have to go that route, right? You can reel back in the fun and do whatever you want to do. Or you can discipline yourself to have a sandbox where you do what you want, you want to do, you know, go coach a soccer league or start a little funny little business on the side, do something to get a sandbox, but begin to build real discipline into how you show up. It's a transition between founder to CEO. And that's where people catch themselves up. And one of the reasons which is completely understandable is that something searing happened in a two steps in early struggle and in fun. The searing thing is this, in early struggle, in early, early struggle, when you just started, all your friends and colleagues looked at you and said, you're very brave. And what they meant is, you crazy dude. I mean, you're crazy. And there are times during early struggle for any new uh, founder where they're thinking, oh, I hope they're not right. I hope they're not right. I think they might be right. I think I was crazy. Do you have dark nights of the soul? And then you get through into fun. You realize you're vindicated. You were right. And the second step is by doing that orchestrating thing, the conductor running on your gut, viscerally leading this business, it grows like crazy. And so here you are in Whitewater and people and, and a, a little voice in your head is telling you, I got to do this other thing. Got to be disciplined. We've got to stick to some systems and processes. And everything is tearing you back to that autonomy, freedom way of managing and leading. And that's the biggest signal barrier that, that I coach with, work with all day, every day. Fantastic. I love that. Les, I'm curious. I'm curious about your method in general. You know, I think it's very interesting when you look at the, just the way that you think about this stuff. And I'm curious if you've been able to use this system or your method of pattern recognition in other aspects of life, perhaps maybe with your diet and health routine to live this long or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, getting to be 137 is just a matter of lying, but uh, <laughs> I, I do feel that I've, I've run I'm sort of like uh, an, a eight-year-old car with half a million miles in the clock. Um, yes, the, the model actually, uh, so I started with um, the focus of by and large, mostly business, not-for-profit thing came along quite early, but I was thinking about business and growth. And what I realized as I tried to generalize this, the model applies to any group of two or more people seeking to achieve common goals to any group of two or more people seeking to achieve common goals. The seven stage growth aspect, strip out the visionary operator process or synergist side of it and just think about early struggle, fun, whitewater, predictable success, applies to any endeavor. So I, I, you're talking about health. I, I lost uh, 60 pounds. I was uh, 252 pounds. Wow. And uh, had tried to, as you know, anybody who's been that weight has tried to do, whether they lie to you about it or not, over and over again, tried to lose the weight. And I, I would have the early struggle, you know, it might be a week of just having to drag myself, maybe two weeks, three weeks of dragging myself to the gym, forcing myself to eat healthy. And it's a real struggle. And I failed. I mean, that 80% ratio, that held. 
80% of the time, I never got past that. And I failed within three days, let alone three years, just died. A few of the times I got into fun and I, I can't believe this. I'm looking forward to this today. And it was fun. And it always broke down on scale. It always broke. So I would be doing well. And then I'd have to go on a three-day business trip. The whole thing would fall. I would arrive at the airport and that Cinnabon smell would be there. <laughs> or I'd step off an eight-hour flight and get to my hotel. And the only options in the late night menu were either a T-bone steak and fries or a four-day-old cheese sandwich. So out of the T-bones and it would just collapse. And it was only when I applied, well, two things. First of all, I met an incredible nutritionist and dietitian and personal trainer. But when I, when I realized, and she helped me do this, she actually knew my model and she helped me realize that I needed to get through those stages. Duh. I mean, there's a saying in Scotland, the cobbler's burns are the last shod. You know, cobbler's a shoemaker and burns are their kids and a shoemaker's children are the last shod. Well, it was that it was just a dawning realization that that this model applies to anything you want to be to make just part of your life. So I use it a lot in, you know, things like my work routines and my health routines. That's that's a I I love that example because it, it's you know, it's again sort of just like it's like a universal truth that this this pattern works, that it that it makes sense. And if I could try to draw the comparison, it sounds like you would be the visionary of what your goals would be for your, you know, health and wellness. You're the operator because you're actually going into the gym where people might on that in the whitewater where they need the processor, they might need a nutritionist or personal trainer to help them uh, push you through to that next level where then it's a synergist between you. The, the processor and all the roles are functioning together, even though you're wearing multiple hats. And interestingly, uh, Jan, my trainer, uh, she called her, she said, I will be your chief wellness officer. And what she did was when I was going on a trip, I just told her what airports I was flying into and what hotels I was staying in. And she sent me every single day an email saying, you will go into this place and buy this thing and eat that and that work. And one uh, a final just point on what you're saying, uh, somewhere where I do get an awful lot of feedback from folks who have made the read across and use it a lot is in personal relationships. And when you think about it, you know, you start seeing somebody, it's sort of early struggle, you're not too sure, is this going to work? Are we, you know, is this, is this a thing? Are we dating? And then you slide through, you're into fun and you're having fun and you're dating. And then you get to that point where you're thinking, um, do I leave a toothbrush here? You know? And, it's, and there's two people trying to meet their common goals. And at that stage, actually bringing in the styles, the visionary operator processor synergist thing can be a real help. I get a lot of uh, emails from married couples saying, I just, I understand my spouse now for the very first time. Wow. He, he's a visionary. I'm an out and out processor. Now I see why we fight about stuff so much or whatever. Well, that's fantastic. And I mean, I'm sure that must mean that must be incredibly fulfilling for you personally to be able to develop this model that's helping so many people. What's driving you today to continue down this path? What are you most excited about uh, in this world? Or, or are you working on sort of other iterations or other models that might be beneficial to people? Like sort of what, what is keeping you going? What's keeping you excited about all this? Well, I just, I'm, I'm very blessed because I'm doing something that I have no desire to do anything else. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people who's done the one thing essentially all my life. And without me knowing it, uh, two and two was starting to add up to more than four 
by about my mid thirties and that has continued ever since. And I'm reaping the reward of that. The two things I'm, excuse me, mostly personally sure. focused on at the moment are, first of all, um, before the pandemic hit, I had already, I was already on year three of a one year strategy to move as much of what I do online as possible. And I'm still doing that. And we've got a lot of online programs uh, on the website and I'm really enjoying uh, making possible some learning that's non-linear that a lot of this stuff is uh, circular it's not it's not that amenable to powerpoint then the next powerpoint and the next powerpoint so uh, i've got um a, a really mastering a massive electronic whiteboard i have right behind me here and i'm really enjoying teaching because i used to use flip charts all the time because it's the best way to do non-linear. and the other thing that uh, i'm enjoying very much is we're building a fantastic group of what we call scale architects. Uh, these are licensed practitioners who are bringing predictable success to geographical locations, uh, industries that I, I wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. And that's being headed up by a marvelous young guy called Scotty Ritzheimer. Uh, he's at scalearchitects.com. And if anybody's interested in what they've heard, head over to Scale Architects if you're thinking of, you might be able to use this in your own consulting practice or in your own business. Uh, he's just got a great group of people and, and being the sort of figurehead and support and a co coach and mentor to them is a great privilege and pleasure. That's really awesome. And, and uh, I'm curious sort of how you're, you know, it sounds like you've been teaching for a long time and now you're at that meta level where you're teaching teachers and what's next. So what's next in, in your, you know, you know, I, it's uh, interesting. I do quite a lot of podcasts and I get asked that a lot. And I never have an, I, well, I've, I've occasionally I've had an answer when there's been one thing that's really uh, uh, grabbed me that I needed to do. Like three years ago, I, I was really uh, taken by the need to distinguish between growth and scale because I felt that was being, you know, misunderstood by a lot of people. So I wrote a book called Do Scale to explain all of that. But my default uh, sort of mode since about 2012 or so is, I just love being in the flow of what I created. So it's pushing me now. I'm going where it takes me to. So I discover new industries every week or month. That is, I meet fantastic, incredibly inspiring new people every month. So I'm sort of being carried along by it. And I'm trying hard not to try to dictate what will happen next. Uh, it's been interesting with the COVID thing. A lot of stuff just sort of slowed down. But my world was already structured to flow with that a lot. And it's been wonderful. You know, I had the busiest year I ever had last year during the height of the, of the pandemic because a lot of my current and past clients were in really good shape. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sound callous here and I'm not demeaning at all the incredible amount of pain that this caused to so many people. But a lot of my clients, you know, they were doubling down on what they were doing with me because they saw that it was working. So I'm just, I'm happy to go with the flow of what I've, what I've, put decades into constructing so far. I love it. Is there uh, anything in your repertoire as far as helping entrepreneurs who are just starting out to, after they've diagnosed their sort of their type of leader uh, to match with other people who are complementary types? Yeah, I've just um, started uh, taking early interest to a new program that I put together. I won't be launching it until the fall. Uh, called escape velocity and it's about achieving that escape velocity that gets you out of early struggle and into fun 
Uh, and my goal with it is not just to, that's the, at the moment, that's the new teaching that I'm, I'm just putting in the can, so to speak, at the moment. Um, but my goal is not just to put a course out there, but to build a community of people because mutual support is so important there. Um, and that will be launching in September. So if you have any interest in that, just go along to my site. It's uh, predictablesuccess.com. Uh, click on the contact us and just shoot a note saying, tell me about Escape Velocity and you'll get an email from me telling you when it's going to launch. That's fantastic. I really think that's a, that is an awesome, awesome direction to go with building a community around this. Cause I'm already imagining, you know, the, the system makes sense. The pattern is there. And I'm sure there's so many people out there who are able to recognize sort of what their faults are, or where they're lacking in getting to that final phase. So I commend you for that. I think it's an unbelievable thing that you're doing both in sharing this system with so many people, the results that people are getting, teaching teachers. It's really awesome to see, uh, hear about your success uh, from where you started and where you've brought it to. Very inspirational story, Les. I love it. Thank you, Patrick. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.